0: The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at StoneOakBible.com. Amen. Good morning, church. I I hope you're doing well. If you do have your Bibles, would you grab them? Would you open with me to Romans uh, chapter 1? Romans chapter 1. Our time so far in Romans has been so rich. It's been timely. It's been challenging. And I believe that our time in this text this morning is going to be, God has something specific for us this morning. I really believe it. Um, I believe we're going to be challenged this morning. And and here's the the way I'd like to get us started. I want to start us with a story. Uh, this story is not original to me. Uh, several years ago, I, I heard a pastor share this with me, and as he shared his story with me, it was one of those those stories that just gripped me and stuck with me. This was so many years ago, but I uh, I can't shake it. So, uh, I want to share this this with you. So, there, there was a pastor in in his congregation. Um, a group in this congregation that got the opportunity to take a trip to a small, secluded village in India. Now, um, it was a mission trip because this, this church had had the opportunity to help start this church, and, and they knew the, the people on the ground there, so this was a privilege to go to this this church. There was an excitement, but you know what? It was a nervous excitement because when I say India, I don't just mean India, I mean, a small, secluded Indian village. So, this is one of those things, of course, you have to get to it by plane, obviously, duh. But it was like one of those where you land the plane, get on a smaller plane that takes you to a truck that takes you to a boat. That takes you to the village, right? It was one of those things. So there was a nervousness. It wasn't just small, or small town, small village, uh, India in a suburban church. There was a lot of things going into this. There was excitement. There was nerves. But, man, they were ready. They were prayed up. They were ready. Something happened, though. As they made this journey, the heaviness set in. And what I mean by this is as they got off the plane, they felt this this. Heaviness. They're not in Texas anymore. As they got on the smaller plane and got off the smaller plane, the heaviness just set in more and more. Until so finally they get to this village, and as they get off, there is this undeniable heaviness that they felt. As they saw idols, as they saw shrines, they saw it. And there was a, it wasn't just culture shock, it was a heavy, spiritual heaviness that they felt. And um, then, though, they were met by the local church, local pastors there, and they were embraced. And although they were cultures and miles apart, uh, as they talked, they realized there was a bond through Jesus that binds us. And there was a a comfort and a commonality there. Um, And the trip went great. He shared the stories of the trip. It was great. But I want to fast forward to the very end of their trip. As this American group was about to head back on the boat, on the truck, on the plane, on the plane to get home, as they were about to do that, they, um, they wanted to come together and debrief with the the, the church there in, in this small village in India. And as they did this... Um, they, they shared their experience, and one of the people on the American team said to the whole group, I have never experienced heaviness like this before. Um, I have never seen idolatry like this before. And it was in this moment that one of the people who lived in this village, one of the locals, um, looked surprised and looked surprised at what, they, what she was hearing, and, and, and was like, really? And she shared her story, because she said, I think I know what you're talking about. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to get on the boat and the truck and the plane and the plane and go to America. And she said, I've never visited, I've always wanted to visit, but when I got there, there was a heaviness that I had never felt before. I've never seen idolatry like that before. Everyone is like, what are you talking about? But then she went on to share that she was taken to a mall, an American mall, and she said, I have never seen that blatant of idolatry in my life. As She was in, engaged and hit with, with um, materialism, just unfiltered materialism. Now... I want us to see something here. The team was shocked. This this was not what they were expecting, but here's what was going on. Both of these cultures, both of these cultures, from the small secluded Indian village to the big suburban American church, both of these cultures had blatant idolatry. Both of them had it. Yet so often... We are the least effective people at identifying our own, our own idols. There's a phrase, it's been going around for, forever, time in erodes awareness of. Time in erodes awareness of, meaning the longer you spend in something, the less aware you become of it. So here in our in in this story the Indians had stopped seeing and they have they had stopped being impacted and affected by their own idolatries by their shrines by their idols and at the same time the Americans had stopped being affected had stopped seeing the idols of their own culture. See, the longer you spend in something, the less aware you become of it. Time in erodes awareness of, and because of this, you are often the least effective person at identifying the idols in your life. You're used to them. Because this is true, there are two things here. One is we need each other. We're going to talk about this a little bit the text will get into this next week a little bit more, but we need each other. People around us who know us, who see blind spots, who say, hey, you're going this direction. Let me call something out. We need that. We need each other because we're terrible at doing it for ourselves. We need each other. We need community, real community who really know us. We need that. The second thing is we absolutely, desperately need the Spirit of God to convict us, to illuminate To search our hearts and help us see what we don't see. So this has been my prayer all week. I've known this text was coming and I've been excited to look at it with you. But my prayer this week, all week, has been that God would help us see what we don't see. There's a a quote that John Calvin said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Perpetual factory of idols, so true. So true. And if you couple that with the fact that we're the least effective people at identifying those idols, we are in a rough, rough place. We need each other. So my prayer is that God would move, that he would work, and that he would show us. So last week, we talked about the wrath of God. Um, If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to take a moment to listen. And the reason I say this is because verses 18 through 20, 21, they help really to set a foundation for us. They really do. They set this foundation for us that we're now going to build on. So last week we talked about the fact that because our God is perfect and holy and righteous and just, He has a perfect and holy and righteous and just response to evil and sin, and that response is called wrath. Our God has wrath. Paul says that God, his, His wrath is poured out, as we looked at last week, on all unrighteousness, all, all. So the big question from last week that we talked about, the, the question is not, will God's wrath be poured out on me for my sin? That is not the question. God's Word just said that His wrath is going to be poured out on all. So the question is not, will God's wrath be poured out on me for my sin? The question scripturally is this, who will bear the wrath of God for your sin? Will it be you or will it be Christ? That is the question. Who is going to bear the wrath of God? The good news, the gospel that we stand on is the fact that Jesus came to bear the wrath in your place. We sang about it already this morning. The gospel is not that your sin is now swept under the rug. That's not it. Your your, Your sin is not ignored. That's not good news. The gospel is that your sin was dealt with perfectly and completely. As Christ bore the wrath of God in your place, you are forgiven, and you are given the righteousness of Christ, and that, at church, is really good news. That's what we talked about last week. And we're going to continue to build on this this morning. Verse 21. Let's, let's dive in here. Verse 21. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pause here. There is a lot here. Um, from this text, just right off the bat, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There is a difference between knowing God and knowing about him. There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and being in Jesus. Here in our text, Paul is calling out a group of people who know about God, who know about him, yet who do not honor him as God they give thanks to him. Instead, Paul says, they've given themselves over to futile, crazy thinking. And I want to pause here because as a pastor, I want to tell you, what we're about to look at, I come to, I approach with a very heavy heart. I preach this with a heavy heart because I believe we we live in a community who by and large know a lot about God, who know a lot about Jesus, who've heard a lot about him yet who do not follow him or honor him as God. I believe we live in a community in many ways that have given themselves over to crazy and futile thinking, foolish hearts being darkened, all of these things. I see my community in this text, so therefore, as I preach it, I preach it with a heavy, heavy heart. And you might hear me say that and say, Pastor, we're not that bad. I mean, come on. Look at this text. We're not that bad. He's he's talking about like, Birds and animals and creeping things and altars. We don't do that. We haven't done that. We haven't made images like that. We're not that bad. Yes, we are. Uh, Yes, we are. Because at the heart of it, church, at the heart of it, idolatry is worshiping created things over the creator. That's it. So in this small village we talked about earlier, this secluded village, it was shrines, it was metal idols. In the American suburbs, it might not be those things. For us, it might be safety. For us, it might be materialism. For us, it might be us and our stuff. Both are idols. Both are equally idolatry. Both are equally a terrible and disgusting exchange, both of them. In exchange, over, in exchange where we worship created over creator. That's idolatry at the heart of it. We claim to be wise, yet we become fools. I preach this again with a heavy heart because I see my own heart and I see my own community in this. And before I read this next verse, I want you to hear me because this might be the thing that God has for you this morning. If you hear nothing else, this might be the thing. There is an eternal and profound difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not. I cannot overstate this. It's not a small difference. There is an eternal and profound difference between those who are in Christ and those who are not. I asked last week, and we we talked about this, who's going to bear the wrath of God for your sin? Will it be you or will it be in Jesus? Well, For those of you who are in Christ, the answer to that question is Jesus. He is going to bear. He has borne the wrath of God for my sin perfectly and completely. But here is the heart of the lie that I think the enemy wants to get us to believe. The enemy wants you to believe that you share that load. That sure, Christ bore the wrath. We get that, we get that. Um, But yet... The enemy wants you to begin to believe the lie and to begin to walk in the fear that comes from believing the lie that you will bear that load as well. To walk in the fear of the wrath of God that one day he's going to get so fed up with you, so annoyed by you that he's just going to divinely zap you with his wrath from heaven. That one day that's coming. In other words, Here's what I want us to hear. The enemy wants you to confuse God's wrath with God's discipline. This is huge. The enemy wants you to confuse God's wrath with his discipline. This is so important to understand because as a child of God, I need you to I need you to hear me. As a child of God, Christ bore the wrath of God in your place and you will bear it no more. No more. As a child of God, you will not bear the wrath of God because Christ bore it in your place. As a child of God, you will not bear His wrath. But as a child of God, you will be disciplined. You are going to be disciplined. There is a profound difference between wrath and discipline. Wrath is reserved for those who are enemies, while discipline is reserved for children. I am, am an imperfect dad to three awesome and imperfect children. And even I get the difference. I even get the difference between pouring my wrath out on my children and disciplining them. How much more, our perfect and heavenly Father. Discipline is not wrath. In fact, I want to read this. You don't have to turn with me here. Hebrews twelve five says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Listen, as a child of God, by the grace of God, you will be disciplined by God. And that is really good news. It's a part of being a son. It's a part of being a daughter. You will be disciplined by God, but don't you buy the lie that you will bear the wrath of God for your sin because that wrath has been shouldered completely. This is huge to understand. We have to see this because of what we're about to read in our text. We have to see this. There's a difference between discipline and wrath. So understanding that Let's look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And then what happened? Well, here in our text, we see the wrath of God. And what does the wrath of God look like? I'll add to this question. What can the wrath of God look like in your life today? verse 24, therefore, meaning because of that, as a result of that, listen to this statement, therefore God gave them up. That is the saddest, most serious, most grave statement that could possibly be made. God gave them up. That is is the wrath of God. God gave them up. We can think sometimes, at least I do, of the wrath of God as like a smiting from heaven or floor opening up. Definitely could be those things. But often the wrath of God looks just like this. It's a giving over. A giving up. And again, this is why I said we had to start where we started. Let me bring us back. In Christ, you are going to experience the discipline of God. Praise God when you do because it's a proof that he loves you. Praise God for that. In Christ, you will experience the discipline of God. Yet, in Christ, you will not experience the wrath of God because the wrath of God has been bore by Jesus. So in the, the words of our text, I want you to follow with me here. In Christ, God will not give you up. That is wrath language, not discipline language. In Christ, God will not give you up. God will not give up on you. In other words, another way to say this is on the cross, as the Father turned his face away from the Son, we can know that the Father will not turn his face away from you. He took that in our place. I have met far too many who have responded to the gospel, followed Jesus, yet who live in outright fear that they're going to someday, in some moment, out God, and that God's just going to lose his patience and say, enough is enough, and that he's going to give them over. As a gospel preacher, I get the great privilege of telling you, no, no, he won't. No, he won't. In Christ, God will not give you up. Giving over in our text is wrath language. As a child of God, that is not your language. Paul says, therefore, God gave them up. And our text continues to say, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them up to their own sin, their own way, their own idolatry. He gave them up. I'm reminded, church, of the book of Ecclesiastes that reminds us that there is nothing, absolutely nothing new under the sun. So here's what I want us to do. Just for a quick moment, I want us to think about Genesis chapter 3. You don't need to turn with me here. I just want us to ponder it together. Genesis chapter 3. And, and remember, there is nothing new. Nothing new. The enemy uses the same old attack again and again and again. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Again and again and again. In the garden, let's think back. If you remember Genesis 3 to the fall, there was this serpent that was crafty, the enemy that was crafty. He came to the woman and said, did God actually say? Did God actually say that you shouldn't eat from the tree of the garden. See, it started with a questioning of God's word. Did you really say that? Questioning God's command, questioning God's design. God, did you actually say that? And the woman said to the serpent, well, yeah, he he did. So she got it right. Um, He said that we can eat of, of any of the trees of the garden, but God said you should not eat from the fruit of That tree, the one in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it lest you die. But the serpent wasn't done. Because it wasn't only, did he say that, actually say that, but then the serpent said to the woman, you're not surely going to die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like God and no good and evil. So what began as a questioning of God's word, did he actually say that, God's command, then became a question of God's goodness. If he said that, he must not be good. What began with the questioning of his word, then shifted into a questioning of his goodness, and the text continues tragically, and it says that the woman saw it, saw it was good, saw it looked good, saw that it was desired to make her wise. She took it and ate it, gave some to her husband who was there with her. He ate it. And then the text says, then their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked for the first time. Notice the enemy didn't give them a 100% lie. What he said had some truth in it. Their eyes were, in fact, opened, just like that serpent said. And they saw and they understood good and evil. They understood now guilt and shame there was truth in that deception, which there always is. But church, what happened here in the garden in Genesis 3 is exactly what happened here in Romans. There was a questioning of God's Word and a questioning of God's goodness. And there was exchange, Idolatry is always an exchange. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. There was this exchange. And just like in the garden, the, the man and the woman, they took God's created order and design. They took the way that God had given them to live. And they questioned it and they exchanged it. They took it thinking that they knew better. And so they exchanged it for their own way, and they worshiped the creature over the creator. And our text says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then Paul continues, and he highlights one of the ways that this has happened. Listen to this. For this reason, God gave them up. Here's that wrath language again. God gave them up. What did he give them up to? God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's unpack this together. I know that this is 2020. And I know that this text is absolutely offensive to the direction our culture is going. I get it. I get it. I know it. Um, The most offensive thing I could possibly do is just to read this text out loud on the street. I get it. Um, But if you're here and in this room, you're thinking, bring it, pastor. Bring the heat. Tell them how it is. Bring it. Let it down with the culture. If that's you, I love you. I encourage you to calm down. I encourage you to slow down. And I encourage you to approach this text with compassion. Compassion. To approach this text asking that the Spirit would move. In you and in our community that we would see revival in our community, that we would see a group of people run back to the Word of God, put down the idols, all of them, that we would repent and run back to the way of God. Let's approach the text with that heart. At the same time, if you're here, and if you're being completely honest, you are a bit offended by this text. If that is you, I love you. (laughs) I love you. I encourage you to come to Scripture to come to this scripture asking that God would help you. Asking to see clearly, to see His Word, to see His design, to see His plan, His way, and to see that it is good. I pray that you would ask Him to do that because here's the truth. You have no idea who you share a row with. You have no idea. No idea. We are a community of people, um, and we have no idea who we share a row with. So, as we approach this text, we do so, whoever you are, submitting to the fact that this is our authority. So, we come to this in in grace and in, in truth. We come to this, and let's come to this together. Let's unpack it. First observation that I want to make about this text is the last line. We're going to start at the end. Work back. Uh, The last line, um, the last phrase that says, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. In order to understand this text, you have to understand it in light of 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to do this very briefly because here in 1 Corinthians 6 Paul gives us an understanding of what he means here by this statement. Paul in this text in 1 Corinthians 6 says the body's not meant for sexual immorality. It's not designed for that. He goes on to say but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then listen to this. He goes on to say this. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin A person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is exactly what Paul is saying here in the last part of our text that says receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. He is talking about the harmful, dreadful, catastrophic effects of sexual sin on us and in us that affects us deeply. Paul says this is not one of those out there sins that we just commit and it's out there. This is a sin that we commit against our own body. And this is what Paul says in view here, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, let me make another observation. Um, I want us to consider the driving language of this portion of Scripture. The language of nature. Natural. Contrary to nature. Nature unnatural, as your translations will say. This church, by the way, is not new language. This is going to draw us back to our text last week that, where Paul says what could be known about God was made plain to them because he had shown it to them. And where did he show it to them? In the creation, the order of creation, so that they were without excuse. What Paul is pointing us back to here, church, to is general revelation, that we are able to see The created order and intended design in his creation. We're able to see it. Paul is pointing us back to this design, to this revealed order, and he's doing this in regard to human sexuality. And he says this, for their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. There was an exchange there was an exchange for what is natural order and design to what Paul identifies as unnatural or contrary to nature. There was an exchange. Why is this important? Why is this important? Um, because, church, God has a design. God has a a design, an intended order for his creation. And this design is not restrictive or heavy-handed. This design has been given an order to lead us to the greatest potential for human flourishing. That is why we were given the design God has given us. It is one of love and order. And Paul here points to the fact that God has a design for human sexuality and it is good and it leads to human flourishing. Let me say it like this, God has a design, His design has been revealed, and His design is good. And just like in the garden, Genesis 3, there's going to be a temptation toward exchange that we are all going to feel. To question God's order and design, if He really said that, if He really meant that, and more than that, to question if He is good. If he said that, could he really be good? Could he really be good? Are his commands good? Is his design good? The temptation that we face is exactly the temptation of the garden. Does God really have an intended design? Has he really revealed it? And if so, is it really good? These are Adam and Eve's questions, and it's the same one that we face today. How will we answer them? For those in Christ, I want to say this before we, we come back to this. Um, it should not surprise us that the lost world around us does not love what we preach. It should not surprise us that the lost world around us does not believe God's Word, does not believe it is good, does not believe that His design is good. It should not surprise us. Um, it should break our hearts. It should cause us to drop to our knees in prayer. It should cause us to go out and share the gospel, yes, but it should not surprise us. We've said this before, but we have seen a movement in our culture. We've seen a movement from a culture who long ago, back in the day, said yes to our God and yes to his values. To then a culture that says no to your God, but we'll take your values. We think your Judeo Christian values are pretty cool, we'll take those. To now a culture that says no to your God. No to his values, no to his design, no to your God, and no, he is not good. No, no, no. That's where we are. And in this culture, church, we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised, but we should be broken, and it should drive us to our knees in prayer for our community that they would see Christ, see the gospel, that they would repent, turn from their ways, and that they would come to Christ. I want to bring this all the way around here. There are two things that we have been talking about, and I want to bring this together. The first is this, the wrath of God. God's wrath in this text is seen in the giving them over. I say this because I just want to pause. Church, our prayer for our community should be that He would never stop pursuing us. That He would never give our community over. that we wouldn't share in the heart of Jonah that says, hey, burn it, God, but that we would share in the heart of Jeremiah who weeps. We should pray for revival here that would lead to repentance here. Do you believe that God could still do that? I hope you do because that is our hope. That is our only hope. This text should drive us to our knees in prayer for our community, and it should drive us to share the gospel with passion, compassion, and urgency. That's the first thing it should do. The second thing here that we must deal with is not only the wrath part, but the idolatry part. We must deal with and confront it idolatry is at the heart of it, it's Genesis 3. It causes us to ask the question, is he really God, did he really say that, and is what he said really good? At the heart of, this, of it all this morning, you and I must answer these three questions. Is he really God, did he really say that, and is what he said really good? There is no question here that this text highlights the sin of homosexuality but don't you dare for a moment think that he's done. Come back next week. You're going to see a long laundry list that we are going to get to next week. Um, He's not done, but he connects this because it connects to the idolatrous heart that we have. That we would exchange what is natural, what is God's created order, what is created design, thinking that we know better, we would exchange that, It's the same thing that would drive us to gluttony, where we worship food. It's the same thing that would drive us to materialism, that we would worship our stuff. It's the same thing that would drive us, I think this might be the most current in our culture, to crazy levels of (laughs) self-care, because we're worshiping ourselves. Same thing. In each case, church, the food, the stuff, the self care, that's not the problem. The problem is the heart. The problem is our hearts. That we would take what is good from God and that we would exchange it for a version, a perverted version that we think is better. Because we think we know better. Idolatry is not an out there problem, it's a problem that creeps in and wreaks havoc in our lives. As I said, there is a difference between the wrath of God and the discipline of God. And I want you to hear me here. The wrath of God in our text, the wrath of God should lead us to prayer for our community, and it should lead us to share the gospel with our community, praying for a revival in our community. That's what the wrath of God should do as we approach this text. But in this text, the discipline of God, do you know what it causes us to do? Look at our own idolatrous hearts. Should lead us to respond in prayer, confession, repentance. As Calvin said, as I said at the beginning, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols, and since that is true, man's posture should be one of ongoing, perpetual humility and confession. I want to finish with with this. Um, I said at the beginning that time in erodes awareness of. Because that is true, there is a strong possibility that you walked in this room unaware of idols in your own heart and life. It's a strong probability. You've been with them for so long, you just don't see them anymore. Here's my prayer. Here's what I believe God is going to do. I believe that through His spirit, at work in your heart, that He is able to make you aware. To give you the eyes to see. And so I believe as we are still working through this text, we're not done, but as we come to the end of this day in this text, I think we need to end in a responsive prayer. I promise it won't be weird. But would you, would you just for a moment, would you just bow your heads with me? And I want us to pray very specifically for two things. Very specifically. First, I'd like for us to pray for our own hearts. I'd like for us to pray that the Spirit would illuminate idols in our own hearts and lives, and that as He does that, I'd like for us to pray that we have the courage to repent and to turn from those idols and that we would turn to Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is I would like for us to pray specifically for our community, who in so many ways have rejected God's design, who have rejected His goodness, and who have ultimately rejected Him. I'd like for us to pray for our community, and I want us to pray specifically for revival, that we would, s- that, that we would see a community turn to Jesus that they would taste and see that he is good, that they would turn from their idols, that they would repent, that they would ultimately respond to the gospel. I'd like to just take a moment as a church family and let's pray for these things. Lord, we come before you this morning and we want to start by just inviting you, asking you, pleading with you to search our hearts and show us things that we don't see. Would you reveal idols? Would you help us pull them out by the root? Would you help us to see? Would we repent? Would we turn? Would we run the other way? Would we turn to Jesus? Would we repent? Would you do that work in us? Only you can do that work. Would you reveal our idols and would you help us throw them onto the ground and crash them into a million pieces? Let it start with us, Spirit. Would you move in us? Secondly, we plead as a congregation. We plead as a congregation for our community. Who in so many ways, we have seen reject you. We have seen they've taken your word and questioned your goodness. We have seen this. We know this. Yet, we pray that you would not give them up that you would never stop pursuing, that even now that you would be wooing them, pursuing them, not letting them go, and that you would be using us on that mission. God, would you send us out? God, altogether, we just want to respond to the good news of the gospel we give you glory for what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen.